Uh, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at Village Church. Today I have the joy of starting a new, um, just two-week series um, with each of you. Now this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to uncover uh, an historic Jewish and Christian practice. It's one that was actually 100% central to, it almost seems when you read scripture, the daily um, ministry and life of Jesus Christ. Um, it's actually a practice that if you're trying to figure out how to break down barriers, relational, political, spiritual, between you and a neighbor, a friend, and a family, um, this is far and away um, the greatest mechanism that God has given his people in this time to begin to break down some of those barriers. Uh, in fact, I would go as far as saying, if you truly want to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, to neglect this practice um, will probably make that process much more difficult. Also, it's a practice um, that you're going to find the more you do it. Um, if you've got some really uh, rule-loving, hyper-fundamentalist Christian friends that love rules, this practice is actually really going to frustrate them and make them angry. So if you want to make rule Christians upset, this is a great thing to do. I'm going to tell you what the practice is in just, just a moment. Um, but if you are a Christian, um, I want to give you the benefit of the doubt here. Um, here's what I think I know about you. I think I know about you that you do want to see people come to faith in Jesus. Um, I, I do know that you understand that apart from Christ, the, the Bible teaches that there is no hope, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I think you, you know that. And so if you're a Christian, um, I think you want people to come to Christ. But I also know um, that you're probably finding that increasingly the message of Christ is falling on deafer ears with every year that passes by. Like there seems to be a growing palpable disinterest to Jesus Christ. Um, like you talk to people and there's not even like a felt need for anything uh, deeply spiritual. Like this is real and this is part of the, the, the growing culture around us. And so Jesus and the early church had this profound practice that really built a bridge between the believer in God, the people of God, and those who are far from God, but not just them, also to people inside of the church. So um, before I even tell you what this is, I, I wanna show you um, historically, primarily, I call them the primary growth engines of the church, how the church grew in different epochs and seasons and places of church history. And so here's the first one. You'll notice that when the church is the cultural majority, um, the church honestly primarily grows through evangelism. And evangelism is a broad word, but let me just define what I mean by it in this context. Evangelism is when you sit down with somebody, it could be one-on-one -on -one in a large crusade, and you share with them the propositional statements of the gospel, and then you ask them, do you want to trust in Jesus Christ? It's very, in a sense, confrontational. So you sit down with somebody and you say, um, you are a sinner who's fallen short of God's perfect standard. Um, it has created a, a distance relationally between you and God. Um, Jesus Christ died on the cross because either you're going to pay for the sins or Jesus is. He rose again from the dead. God confirmed who Jesus was uh, and anybody who believes in Jesus can be saved. Do you today want to trust in Christ? Now, probably the vast majority of you, if you're over 30 or 40 years old, you came to Christ when somebody gave you an evangelistic propositional offer like that. Um, what's interesting is you find this in Crusades, Billy Graham, over the last uh, three 300 years of American history, this was one of the most dominant ways the church grew. Here's an interesting insight. When you go to secular college campuses, do you know who the most despised person on that campus is? The evangelist. Oh, way worse than the Christian, the bullhorn evangelist. A hundred years ago, that same guy was applauded and people responded. 
uh, in droves in numbers. Something has shifted so that this mechanism is growing increasingly obsolete and effective. Now, did I say totally? The answer is no. It will never be totally obsolete. But let's go to the third one. Um, the third one is this. When the church is the persecuted minority, it means we're out of the cultural minority and now we're being actively oppressed by whatever or whoever is in control, it's martyrdom. Uh, when the people of God are murdered, the church of God explodes in growth. It's powerful. Um, one of the dumbest things that Satan could ever do is, is incite martyrdom with a bunch of Christians because it doesn't get rid of the church. It amplifies the growth of the church. Uh, now, we're not in that place. We're not even close to that place, at least in America. But in some places, um, martyrdom is, is a very regular experience. And what you find is that the church cannot be stopped in these countries. But today, here's what we're going to focus on. We're going to talk about what happens, what do we do, how do we proclaim the gospel, how do we bridge this cultural gap, this relational gap, this political gap, if you will, that even pervades so many of our discussions, when we are no longer the cultural minority, but the minority. It's a simple word, very misunderstood, and it's hospitality. Uh, now, what you're going to find is that this is the subject that is on almost every single page of Scripture, and you never even notice. It's almost just ubiquitous. It's always there, and it's everywhere. It's under the current, but it's always there. Uh, we're going to explain what this means, but in, in America, we're in a transition culturally between number one and number two. And so while we're in this transition for the foreseeable future, um, people are going to come to church. Mostly, though, they're going to have kids and then they're gonna to come to church. Maybe they grew up with some kind of Christian background, but it's gonna be increasingly less common for people with no church background to wake up one day and say, I'm gonna to go to church. It's also gonna become increasingly less common um, that they're gonna hear an evangelist on TV and respond to an evangelist. What you're gonna find is that the primary way the church grew in the first century, second century, and third century was not actually through martyrdom. There were like small pieces of the early church where martyrdom was significant and the church exploded. But by and large, the church went from 12 guys and some girls and Jesus to being over 50% of the Roman Empire in 250 years, not primarily by public evangelism to Gentiles, although that was a small part of it. It happened home by home, house by house, meal by meal, person by person, over 250 years to the point where the Roman Empire could no longer deny it, and for the sheer sake of sustainability, Constantine had to declare it uh, the, the dominant religion of the empire. That's crazy. Now, that is, a, that is a movement, person by person, if I've ever seen one. But what the early church got, what Jesus got in his ministry, but something that the American church has largely abandoned because we've believed that we're the cultural majority, is that hospitality is an option. And we're, I'm going to show you today that it's actually not an option, that if the church is going to be effective, we have to employ brand new means of communicating love and the gospel to our neighbors. Next week, we're going to go deeper into this. What does it mean as a church uh, to be a hospitable church? church, and then the, today we're going to be talking about just in your personal lives, what does that look like? Let's define hospitality. What is hospitality? Um, very simply, it's literally a combination of two words, philo and xenos. Uh, the word is philoxenia, and it's the most probably clearly understood to be uh, affection or kindness to strangers or guests. So philo is uh, brotherly love, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, etc. cetera. Uh, xenos is a word for stranger, a word for guest. It's, it's a versatile word. 
But basically, hospitality can be shown to anybody who is a stranger or even just a guest in your home or wherever you might be. Biblically, let's give you just a broader definition of what is biblical hospitality. Here's, here's a definition. Biblical hospitality is providing my neighbor, that is a very loose term in scripture, okay? Neighbor could be the person you hate the most, might actually be your next door neighbor, might be the person sitting next to you. <clears throat> uh, providing my neighbor with the experience of home. Now I wanna help you understand why for many of you hospitality is such a hard concept to get your brain around. Uh, because in the West, where we live, our homes are often seen as a retreat. You go home to get away. But in the, in the Bible, our home is actually supposed to be a place of refuge. Isn't that interesting? In the West, our home functions like a commune, a closed community with locked doors where we don't let people in. But in the Bible, and I would say in actually most of European and Eastern cultures, our home is intended by God to be a place of community. Hospitality is baked into the ecosystem of European and Eastern cultures. It's baked into the Jewish cultural system. Like you can't be Jewish and not value and practice hospitality. You, you can't be an early Christian, right, and not understand the cultural demand and importance of hospitality. Um, in fact, if you just start reading through the Gospels and, and the book of Acts, you're going to see that almost everything happens around food. Like 94 times in Matthew alone, Jesus is eating or referencing food or experiencing some kind of hospitality. It's on every single page of the New Testament. It's, it's almost like once you see it, you can't unsee it. Uh, the people that Paul applauds the most are the ones who actually practice the most hospitality, and they understand, the Christian understands, yes, at times your home needs to be a commune. There are moments where you need privacy, but what you do is you understand that our home is bigger than that. Our home isn't just a retreat place for me to go away to get away from the world. Our home is actually a place where some of the most powerful gospel conversations you will ever have in your life could happen around a table. Now, I wanna share with you the evolution of Jewish hospitality. Uh, so go back in history with me. Uh, look at ancient Near Eastern cultures, all the Old Testament, it's what we call ancient Near Eastern. Hospitality, again, was baked into their cultural ecosystems. It was one of the highest values you could possibly have. So in fact, there are a couple instances in scripture where hospitality codes are violated and the response was either threats of death or almost war between, between two tribal clans or families. Like to violate hospitality codes would actually be one of the lowest lows that you could do. You remember, you remember the story in Genesis where um, Lot brings in two strangers and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah come around the house and threaten to violate them in perverse ways, and Lot offers his daughter instead. Remember that story? It's very weird. We're gonna to get to that in the fall when we go through the life of Abraham, but like, it's a very strange story that does not make sense to any Westerner, but if you go into the ancient Near East, Lot had no, no other option. That the highest value over the life of his children was to, to protect the strangers in his, in his home. 
So now here's what we would find. God is going to take this nation of Israel, and he's going to train them and take this, we'll say, cultural impulse towards hospitality, and he's going to create a nation that is actually hospitable. And so the, the law has pretty intense and specific um, words um, about how the nation is supposed to treat aliens, strangers, sojourners, exiles, immigrants, etc. Um, there are different classes, if you will, and the Bible has different applications for them depending on certain things. And this is, again, for Old Testament. Israel, not for America, so we don't create modern immigration policy off of old covenant laws, do we? Say no, please, you don't want to do that, because then you're going to have to start taking other policies and applying them, it's going to get slippery. Um, But here's what you find, is that if you are a stranger in the land, it would be a place of peace for you. It would be a place where in the arid, hot desert that would kill most people, you would have a home to stay in. And if perchance you you couldn't get a home, you could go to the edges of anyone's fields and eat because by law, the people of God even set up their fields so that they were hospitable to the poor and to the strangers and to the guests and to the immigrants so that people had something to eat no matter where they were coming from and no matter where they were going. It was actually a very powerful policy. But by the first century, something really weird happened. So by the first century, the, the Israelites had almost completely abandoned this practice of hospitality. In fact, if you were a rabbi in the first century, a priest or a Levite, never in a million years would you be caught dead with a Gentile at your table. And one of, the, one of my questions is I'm, as I'm reading the Old Testament law and then looking at the stories of the Gospels and Jesus and the Pharisees' hyper-fundamentalistic religious legalism and laws, like, how did they go from being so hospitable as a nation to being so cold-hearted, racist, and judgmental. Um, There's a lot of aspects to this, but I wanna give you the high-level answer to this. About 600 years before Jesus, the Babylonians came in and a worldwide empire and obliterated Israel, destroyed their temple, and exiled or sent back to Babylon the vast majority of the Israelites as slaves. It's called the Babylonian exile. It happened over a period of 20, 30, 40 years, and and group after group after group was taken from Israel, sent um, hundreds of miles to the east to Babylon as slaves. And here was the question that the the priests, the religious leaders, had to answer. How could we ever obey the Torah with no temple? You might be new to Christianity, but let me just give you a little one-on-one. You open up the book of Leviticus, Numbers, etc. The first five books of the Bible is the Torah. It's the basis for Jewish religious life and the relationship to the temple. Um, So much of following God uh, was contingent on there being a temple. You had to have certain feasts, festivals, sacrifices, and with no temple, you had no ability to obey God's word. And so the people, the priests, came up with a system. Now, this isn't God's system, I'm just telling you the priestly system um, that they developed after the exile, and here's what they developed. A new approach to faithfulness, a new approach to the temple, and here's what it was. Your home is the new temple. Your table is the new altar. Your father, your dad, is the new priest. And the meal is the new sacrifice. And so the home became a substitute temporarily for the functions of the temple. And this is where people practiced holiness. Now you think about like the temple, the holy of holies, right? It's a place that only the priest could go once a year, even with trepidation. And now the Jewish home became like the holy of holies. It became a place that only the righteous, only the holy, only the good people, only the rule followers 
could come into. The next question that the Pharisees and the religious leaders were trying to answer was this. How do we get out of exile? How do we not just get into our land, but how do we get to a place where we're free? So you get to the first century, and here's what you find. Many of the Jews are back in Israel, but who are they occupied by? Rome. Uh, They're not totally out of exile. They're still under the judgment of God. And the Pharisees want, the religious leaders want freedom from Rome. But but they believe that until the people of God are righteous, that it's not going to happen. And so they become very particular in this time about their homes. And so if your home is the new temple, I want you to imagine this. Do you know who wasn't allowed in the temple under Jewish law? Disabled people. Special needs people. Uh, If you were struggling with your faith. If you were not a, a... a Torah follower, a Jew, we would say a non-Christian functionally now, if you were not a God follower, like you weren't even allowed in. And so here's, here's what happened. I mean, you, you now are a first century Jew and you have been baked in this new culture of hospitality, perverse as it might be. And the idea of a Gentile eating at your table would cause you more social scorn than you could possibly, possibly imagine. The table that God created to bring people together. Religion used to divide people even further. Isn't that interesting? I mean, God created the home to be a refuge for the immigrant and the sojourner. And the people of God perverted it to such a way that they wouldn't even touch somebody of a different race, a different skin color, a different ethnicity, or a different religion. So turn with me, Luke 19. Now we got our context. Luke 19, point number one, if you're taking notes, it's a new perspective on my home, a New Testament perspective on my home. Uh, This is the story of Zacchaeus. Um, So badly want to sing to you the little Zacchaeus song, but I'm the worst singer, so I'm not. Jesus and Zacchaeus, verse one, chapter 19. He, Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through. Jericho was a prosperous city. Uh, That's important because the tax collectors, that means are gonna be wealthy and the chief tax collector is gonna be very wealthy. Behold, verse two, there was a man, a wee little man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. Can I just like blow your mind for a little moment? Uh, in, the, in the Greek text, uh, it's not clear who's small in stature, Zacchaeus or Jesus. Let me just go back and read the English right now. And you'll, it's like, wait, who is it referring to? Now, you would think, you would think this is Zacchaeus <clears throat> because I would think Luke would not drop this bomb 19 chapters into the book of Luke about Jesus, but, <clears throat> but probably Zacchaeus. But it's interesting because maybe, maybe, maybe Jesus was small in stature. Probably not. Most likely Zacchaeus. So he ran on ahead. Sorry, I've got all this stuff like boiling in here and it takes a lot. If that's the, if that's the tip of what you get, like you're welcome. All right. <laughs> So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Just pause for a moment. Um, Zacchaeus represents, for the religious fundamentalists of the day, uh, let, me, let, me, let me give you like a way maybe that I could help you empathize, okay? Uh, let's assume for a moment you are politically conservative. Don't worry, if you're politically liberal, I'll give you an analogy too in a moment. I want you to imagine you're politically conservative, okay? And uh, I want, this is who Zacchaeus 
represents to you. Uh, he represents the Bernie-loving, Hillary-voting, socialist, big government, anti-Trump, jobless millennial. Okay? Like, you know that person that you're like, whoa, right? So if you're a hyper-conservative, like, that person is like the evil one in your book, okay? Now let's imagine that you are um, a political liberal, okay? Zacchaeus would represent for you the Trump-loving, gun-toting, Bible-thumping, right-wing, white Republican man, right? The one person you're like, ugh, right? Like, that's how controversial of a figure Zacchaeus is to the Jewish community. He's one of their own, okay, that works for Rome, their oppressors, and then exploits them and steals their money and is living fat and rich off of the backs of his own people. It's actually just disgusting. So Jesus calls him down from a tree and says to him, I'm eating at your house today, right? So anybody ever invite yourself to someone's house? Here's what I love about American hospitality codes. If you invite yourself to someone's house, they have to say yes or they're a jerk, right? Can I come to your house this week and eat? Uh, uh, how about next week? How about the week after? I'm coming to your house and I'm eating, right? Like you're stuck and now they'll tell stories about you, but, but you gotta go. Anyways, um, so here's what happens in verse, verse five. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down. I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. Verse seven, and when they, they is like the, the one group of people, if you want to make anybody mad, like Jesus wants to make they mad. Like he has no patience for they. Uh, they are the religious leaders. They're just rules, 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 rules. They perverted the heart and the spirit of the law. They've missed the point of the good news of who God is and what he's doing. They just missed it all in the name of religion. And they all, not just some, they all, right? I mean, it's, this is like so sad and pathetic. And here's what, here's what he says. He has gone in to be with the guest of a man who is a sinner, right? Like you can just feel the pathetic, pathetic tension that they are experiencing. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold, which is the way the law would have it be done. And he's basically saying, I'm resubmitting myself under the righteous application of the law. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this man, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man, Jesus Christ, came to seek and to save the lost. And do you know where Jesus most often found the lost? in their homes, around a glass of wine and a loaf of bread and a meal, and they loved him for it. Like Jesus invaded people's homes. And if Jesus had a home, you're gonna find that the world his home, is his home. And Jesus invited people into his space on a regular basis and loved them in this unique way. And it built bridges powerfully. People who were far from God that you would never, ever, 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 ever expect to change their life over a meal. Something about this experience uh, became something that humanized people, brought them together and did powerful, powerful things. Let's make some observations. Number one, this meal was not scandalous to God. It might have been scandalous to a lot of other people. It was not scandalous to God. Like, there might be some people, I can't, I can't imagine, I mean, Village Church, I've never had somebody say, can you believe that he had a meal with him? Or this kind of person had a meal with that person? I've never heard it, but I, I do know that there are people who think that way. 
Um, but what you have to understand is that this is not scandalous to God. In fact, I would go the opposite and say it's expected. Number two, the non-Christian world tends to get this in ways the church does not. The non-Christian world tends to get this in ways the church does not. Let me just throw out like a little insight to you. Um, the vast majority of 20-somethings in suburban America growing up in churches move to the city, by and large, leave the church. Why? Because they are invited into communities, into homes, accepted unconditionally around food and people who love them. And that is actually one of the most powerful forces that a culture can use to bring somebody in. It's powerful. Uh, I, want, I want to give you just a, a strange example. Um, yesterday in Bartlett, I don't know if you heard um, yesterday morning, tons of loud Indian music throughout the city. Did you hear that? I didn't know what it was until my wife told me, but a couple weeks ago, I get a flyer in the mail from the Jane Society uh, and, and basically said, hey, come, come worship with us, and in fact, is, is what it said. So it's interesting because I get this, and I'll just tell you my immediate reaction. Um, I found it, I walked to the trash, and I threw it in the trash. And then I thought to myself, hmm, I bet this is how a lot of people experience the church. Like, I looked at this, and it had nothing that I wanted. It scratched no itch that I had. I had no curiosity. Like, I wasn't even remotely curious I was so not curious, I didn't even open it up to read what was inside, even out of my sheer intellectual curiosity for what other religious communities in Barlet are doing. And it just hit me that, Michael, this more and more is the posture of our community to the church. Like it's not even scratch, it's not even a curiosity in them. Now let me tell you actually what would have changed my approach to that document. If my next door neighbors were from the Jane Society and they had me over for a meal uh, because Indian food is the best food in the history of the world, just saying, but that's not even like debatable, it's just a fact. So um, I'm joking by the way, but I'm not. Anyway, so, uh, so they, they invite me over. Probably in that scenario, if I lived next to an Indian family, I would be inviting myself over probably daily or weekly with my kids. And so I would go over and I want you to imagine they looked at me and they said, hey, we have this event coming up and it would be really important for us for, for, for us, that you would know kind of like who we are and our people. Like we've been friends for a while and I would love for you to come. Here's a flyer. Do you know what I would have done with that flyer? Um, I would have prayed about it and I would be exponentially more interested in going to that event because it's rooted in a relationship and love. Do you see the difference? Like there's something about my entire emotional posture. I don't even need to be curious because when you love somebody, you're willing to immerse yourself in their world, whether you agree with it or not. Now, again, as a Christian, you may have some limits around that, but I found myself being so much more willing had I been sitting at a table with somebody who loved me and wanted me to know them personally. Do you see the difference? It's why when, when you get baptized, people who would never step a door in church will come to church to see you baptized, not because they're interested in faith, but because they love you and they want to know you. Meals bring people together. Uh, meals bridge gaps. They bridge cultural gaps, religious ga gaps. If you're not a jerk, I mean, let me just be clear, if you're a jerk, all the meals you're in are gonna stink, okay? Let's just, let's just assume for a moment you have a semblance of humanity and you're like a pretty decent person. You don't need to fight with everybody, okay? Uh, 
You can literally take a political conservative and a political liberal, you can sit them around a meal, and it can be a really great time. I've got a couple friends. One of them um, is a, I mean, he is just on, he is just fighting for Bernie Sanders for years. And when he comes in town, um, him and I sit down over a cup of coffee, and we debate, and we debate, and we debate, and we debate, and we have a blast. And I guarantee you, if there was not coffee sitting between us, something to do with our hands, it probably wouldn't go that well, right? And, um, and, and don't even read into my politics on that. I just, uh, he just comes from a very different sexual community, religious community, philosophical community, cultural community. Like We are so different on every single level, but here's what he knows. He knows, even though he hates everything I believe and I, I think and stand for, he loves me. He doesn't always like me, but he loves me. And I don't agree with anything this guy thinks. I mean, literally every word that comes out of his mouth, I'm like, really? Like, people think that, you know? And, and, uh, but you know what's interesting is like food bridges the gap. It's a really interesting, really interesting world. Um, and so we have the craziest discussions, and agreement actually doesn't even matter um, because there's an actual affection and love, and that was rooted in a shared community and life together. It was one of my favorite lines, proximity breeds empathy. Uh, the farther away you are from somebody, the less you have to concern yourself with their story and their world and their passions. And let's be honest, I don't care if you're a Christian or not, don't you want to be understood? Don't you want to be known? Here's something I love about hospitality. This is a very rare experience, generally, but I want to, I want to put this on the front end of my comment. Um, Village Church has been one of the most incredibly hospitable environments I've ever been in. Um, home after home after home, I am awesomely encouraged and astounded at how hospitable we are and you are to one another, to my family. To, it's, it's amazing, actually. Um, building these bridges to people who are not like you, it's actually just good. It's just good for you generally. But the closer you get to people who are different than you, it breeds empathy. You start to understand that, you know what, like, they actually have emotions and feelings and ideas and logic and they want to be known and they're created in God's image and they infinitely matter. Like it just humanizes people. And so sometimes when you just look over your fence and you ask somebody to come over for a meal, um, I mean, again, don't be a jerk, but you can actually start talking about life and really amazing things can happen. Uh, in the book of Luke, Luke is, is going to make a very not so subtle point about hospitality. Turn um, backwards a few chapters to Luke chapter 10. And I want to show you um, uh, one of the main points that, that Luke is making about hospitality. It's, it's a, a story you know, um, but what you're going to find is that you could probably go back to the vast majority of scriptures and uh, the stories in the Gospels, reread them through the lens of hospitality, and they're going to take on a brand new light for you. Uh, Luke 10.30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, probably a Jewish man, uh, and he fell among robbers. It's actually a strip of, of a pathway that is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly dangerous. What he was doing there without protection, we don't know, but he was there. Going from Jerusalem to Jericho, he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. If the priest helped him, he would have become ceremonially unclean. That's how, that's how ridiculous their law had become. They loved the law more than people. Uh, and then he passes him by. Uh, so likewise, a Levite, uh, when he came to the place, saw him pass by on the other side. Again, uh, law connotations, becoming unclean. Um, again, I cannot ever imagine leaving somebody, especially if you are a Jew in that time, another fellow Jew, to die so that you don't become ceremonially unclean. But 
a Samaritan, half Jew, hated the Jews, Jews hated the Samaritans, arch enemies, like most vile of vile, they have a long historical lineage that goes back and their ancestors betrayed each other and so the Samaritans are despised. And one of the points, I want you to catch this, one of the points that uh, Luke wants to make for you and Jesus is trying to make in this story is that sometimes it's the non-Christians who actually get the principles of hospitality better than the church. And so here's what he says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds already. Like, they don't touch each other. They don't speak to each other. They don't go in each other's homes. Like, this is, this is anathema. This is terrible. Um, then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. Look at, look at the next verse, verse 35. And the next day. So here's what, here's what this means. He stayed in the hotel room with him. This isn't some weird perverted thing. This is not scandalous because it's perverted. It's scandalous because the racial tensions here are unlike most things you know personally. Um, it's scandalous because he literally spent most of the night caring for this person's wounds. But he's not done. He's not just going to leave and then leave the guy. Here's what he says. And he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever, you, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He's not even done with him. He's gonna come back and he's gonna make sure that this guy has everything he needs. Here's a, a few more just insights on hospitality and observations from this text. Hospitality is rooted in excess. Now, this for some of you is your great excuse. Let me tell you the Christian version of excess. The poorest of the poor of the poor has excess. You're alive, you have excess. You're a, you're a widow and you have a might to give, you give all you have, trusting that the Lord always has something up his sleeve to continue his loving provision for you. Uh, the Christian understands, I have infinitely more than I could ever need and I always have enough to care for someone else. And even if what they demand is more than I think I can afford, it doesn't fit into my emergency fund budget, right? You figure it out and you trust that the Lord will figure out a way to help you get what you need. Some of the most meaningful moments of hospitality have happened in some of the poorest countries for me personally. Uh, number four, hospitality is about using your excess to care for the whole person who crosses your path or as scripture calls it, your neighbor. Uh, it's interesting because this Samaritan guy, he had some place to be, right? And he still got his business done, right? But he didn't do it in such a way that he abandoned the person. He actually used his time and his space and made sure that this man was cared for. Number five, and this might be my favorite part of hospitality and that for me has been the most encouraging. Home is wherever you are. Home is wherever you are. This guy wasn't in his home, but did he, did he practice unusual and unbelievable hospitality? Absolutely. Jesus feeds the 10,000. Was Jesus in a home? No, it's interesting because hospitality, there's usually, a, there's an initiator, there's a host, right? And you can practice hospitality anywhere. Um, this weekend, we were some very good friends, and uh, we were in Sandwich, Illinois. Um, it was not my home, it wasn't their home, um, but they were the ones who got the house, and we came in, and they made us food and cared for us, and we felt like we were in their home, even though it was not either of our home. 
Um, home is really a matter of, of where you are and how you view yourself. When I go out to eat with people, if I take them out, I view myself as the host and I view myself as if I am at home and I wanna create an environment for the person that I'm with that feels as safe as any home environment is. Hospitality is not limited to homes. A hospitality happens wherever a host is. And the Christian tells himself this, my home is wherever I am and wherever I can provide a space for somebody, whether it's through food or shelter or it's through conversation or counseling or encouragement or friendship to provide the things that a home provides, then I'm going to take that opportunity in that moment. Point number two, if you're taking notes, but what about so many buts? Let's talk about on the giving side, the hosting side, the hospitality side, but I'm broke. So was Jesus, <laughs> but I'm poor. Can I tell you a story? Um, probably my brain already knows this, this might cross a, a decorum line, but um, I don't think it's sinful, so um, go with me for a minute. I stayed in Mexico. Uh, I was a, on a mission trip twice in high school. Completely impoverished community. And every time I go to Mexico, I get Montezuma's Revenge. Every single time. It's just unbelievable. Like, if there's a plausibility that I'll get sick, it's going to happen. So um, I'm staying with this uh, family, small home, and myself and my friend Aaron, we're, we're, they're taking care of us, and they're feeding us three meals a day, and they are caring for us. Well, by day three, of course, I swallowed the water in the shower, brushed me, I don't know what I did, but it always gets in my body. And um, we're about to eat dinner, and I, I'm like, uh-oh, like I know the feeling, here I go, this is over, here's the problem. Um, <laughs> The house is small. The kitchen, um, they had brought in another table to fit my friends and I, and, um, and they just went all out. They went next door. They butchered the animals right before they fed them to us. I mean, they gave us their absolute 100% best. The problem is um, one of the chairs literally was so close to the bathroom door, which was made out of functionally paper, that um, you, in order to get in and out of the bathroom door, you had to ask the person, can you move your chair, and then you get in, right? So... I'm in there for a half hour, and I just hear people snickering, ha, 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 they're eating, and, and I've, I mean, I'm not going anywhere, so I finally get out, and the mother in Spanish says to me, are you okay? Now, the answer, of course, is no, but I have learned only words that I thought were funny. So I went out of my way to not learn a lot of Spanish. So I learned the word for water, everybody knows that, but of course I learned the word for fart, because that was important. Um, <laughs> So my wife will tell you that I freak out when people speak Spanish to me and they don't speak English. It's like, I, have, I don't know why I have a panic attack. I'm just like, ah, and the dumbest things come out of my mouth. So I'm searching my, my 10 Spanish words, five of which are swear words and I should not have said. And so I look at her and I say, I fart lots water. <laughs> And that family laughed their heads off, and they were saying about each other in Spanish, it's like, he farts lots of water, ah! you know? And I'm like, I got nothing. But let me tell you, this mom, this mom cared for me for four days. She pampered me, she took care of me, she, I mean, this, it was like as good as having my own mom. And I'm in this poor country, they have nothing, they've already given us like all of their food for the month in a one week period, and they're just trusting that the community or God or something is gonna provide food for the next couple weeks because they just slaughtered a pig. I mean, waking up at five in the morning to slaughter pigs is just, it's, a, it's an insane thought. But like, she loved me so well, broke. Absolutely poor, poorer than any of us in this room, and she figured it out. If she can figure it out, 
We can figure it out. But I'm single. All the more. You should have a ton of cash if you're single. Like, take care of people. My home is a mess. Clean it. I don't know. Like, like, honestly, like, I don't know if your home's like this, but we have rooms that are always messy, and we have sections that people see that are, like, tolerable, you know? Like, I have three kids. I mean, what am I going to do? All right, let's talk about on the receiving I don't want to inconvenience somebody. I totally get it. All this reverse American pride. I don't want to inconvenience you. I don't, let me just say this. Inconvenience me. I'm a Christian. I'm your brother. I'm your friend. Inconvenience me. Put me out. Do it, please. Put me out. You need something. Don't worry about inconveniencing me. If I can't do it, I'll tell you, and I'll help you find somebody who can, right? Like, let me be inconvenienced. I mean, how many of, I, how many of you have I inconvenienced? Like, almost all of you, one time or another, right? Do it back. But this is, this is just kind of get that out of your vocabulary. And again, if you can't, you can't, right? That's fine. Honesty is better than just an excuse. But I know they're busy. Again, it's just an excuse, right? Everyone's busy. But sometimes we just need someone to break through our busyness just to bring us human moments again. To be in a place, like one of the most special experiences is when somebody crafts a small evening just to serve you. Food they know you're going to like, questions to get to know you, um, just something that they know would draw you out and humanize you and encourage you and build you. It's actually incredibly powerful. And all of us could use our busy schedules to be interrupted now and then, can't we? Right. But I can pay for myself. Good for you. <laughs> when, I, when I went to Mexico, when we go to Haiti, like all of us in this room make more than they're going to make in 30 years. Of course, I could pay for myself. But there is something incredibly life-giving and a blessing about providing a meal for somebody. And you can offer, and they'll, and they'll say no, and that's fine. But sometimes it's okay. Just because they have more money than you doesn't mean you can't be hospitable, hospitable to them. Here's what 1 Peter 4.9 says. I love this. Show hospitality to one another, <laughs> this is hilarious, without grumbling, right? <laughs> and it's almost like Peter knows, like, you and I are going to have a gajillion excuses to not, like, open our homes and see, like, other people as Oh, infinitely valuable and needing to be cared for and loved and served, etc. Um, do it without grumbling. As each has received a gift, meaning you do it in proportion to what you have. Some of you have a ton and you can lavish people. Some of you have a little and you give them the best of what you got. It doesn't matter. When you're on the receiving end of a gift, it doesn't matter if it's big or little. It's just meaningful because it's intentional. As each has re- received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Let's get to some so what's. Uh, number one, the host sets the agenda and the culture of the experience. Um, here, here's the, the two words that I love. When you're with me, I'm not saying I get this all the time, but this is my goal, humble transparency. I want to be a servant, and who I, who I am is who you get. I'm not trying to prove anything to you. I just want you to know me. Like, this is me. Like, I try in the pulpit to, like, not put on a lot of facade because I do have to go face my wife and my mother-in-law and my father-in-law and some of my best friends. Like, they know if I'm putting on a facade. So when I preach, I prefer to be on the humble side than the prideful side. And I also want to be as transparent and fully me as I can be. But when I'm hospitable or when I'm with you or I'm taking care of you, I just, those are the two words. I want it to be humble. I want it to be servant-hearted. I want it to be less about me, more about you. And I, I don't want to put up a facade just as much as I want to get to know you, I want you to be able to get to know me for who, for who I am. I think it's really important to know your agenda, by the way. Um, my, I'll, just, I'll say this. My agenda is never to get people saved. My theology actually tells me that I can't magically save someone through a meal. Um, my agenda is, honestly, when I invite you to my house, when I invite you to, to dinner, it is literally just to know you, 
to encourage you and to help you in any way I can. It is to be known and it's to be encouraged and to allow you to be a help to me in any way you can. It's just community, it's love, it's brotherhood, it's sisterhood. That's, I don't have these grandiose agendas. Here's a one-liner that I love. Share your heart, not, not agendas. Share your experiences and not your theology. Let, let me tell you, when you're actually sitting with somebody who's not a believer, I'll, I'll give you one of the most, I think, helpful tools I could give you. Um, if you sit with somebody and give them five propositions of the gospel and say, are you ready to trust in Christ? The Lord can use that. Um, by and large, um, there are multiple ways to accomplish the same thing. And uh, recently I was in uh, an experience with somebody who is not a Christian. Um, they're religiously interest- interested. They know I'm a pastor, so they asked me some things. And they asked me what is unique about Christianity. Now, I could have gone and do a propositional statement at that time, but I didn't. Um, I'll tell you what I did. I told them my story. Um, I told them about growing up in a Catholic school in a Presbyterian church. I told them about my struggle with things. I told them about coming to grips with certain ideas. I just, I told them about um, being in a Catholic school and them teaching me that salvation is about being good and, and then reading scriptures and what that meant for me personally. I just told them my story. And every proposition of the gospel is in the story, but I didn't need to like preach a gospel to them. I told them my story. You know what my story did? It created empathy. And then they got my number and then we're gonna go out to lunch. Like, why? Do I have an agenda with them? No. My agenda with him is to love him and to care for him. I can't save him. I don't have the power to enter into someone's heart and you know, make him trust in Christ. Um, if he never trusts in Christ, do I like him less? No. Like, like that's out of my control. What is in my control is to figure out ways to actually be fully present, to allow him to know me. And I just told him my very personal story. And uh, I found that to be much, much more encouraging and real than me just seeing him as an agenda to get saved. Uh, Number two, uh, the one hosted responds in kind with humble transparency. Um, I've been at many, many dinners where I'm like, so how you doing? Fine. (laughs) Please don't make this so hard. Just respond to me. Tell me, what do you like? Stuff. I'm like, okay. It's like, you're not a teenager. Like, open your mouth. Uh, Number three, this is our heritage is the people of God. Um, Communion doesn't always make sense to people in American culture. Baptism doesn't always make sense to people in American culture, but it's our heritage. And we figure it out and we find the beauty and the meaning of it, even though it's not a part of our heart culture. Hospitality is, is a dying breed amongst Christians in America, but it is our heritage as the people of God. Um, Number four, it's a command of God. It's a command of God. Here's some questions I wrote down for myself and I'll ask them for you. Is my home a castle with a moat to keep the world out? Is my home a disaster where we dump all our garbage? Is my home ready to obey as opportunities come up? Am I okay with people seeing my life as it is when they show up on a dime? Let me read some scriptures for you just to encourage you. Romans 12, 9 through 13 um, all of these are commands. Like, is it a good thing? Like, would God say, let love be genuine? Everyone say, yeah, yeah. Look at verse 10. Should we love one another brotherly with brotherly affection? The answer is, yeah. Should we outdo one another showing out? Like, yeah, yeah. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Well, what about seeking to show hospitality? Like, it's interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tithing. Uh, but, uh, I'm not, I don't have the gift of hospitality. I'm broken, poor, I'm single, right? It's interesting because now we're gonna, we're gonna unpack this a little bit more. I want you to watch this evolve. Let's go to 1 Timothy. And uh, you find that if you're gonna be an elder, this is a requirement because hospitality is a sign of spiritual maturity. 
the overseers must be hospitable. Um, it's not just godly men, it's also godly women. There's this whole biblical system which we can get into in another sermon about widows and what kind of widows should be cared for and not cared for by the church. And the godly widows, you know one of the expectations of them is? Hospitable, 1 Timothy 5, 9 to 10. Here's what Hebrews 13 says. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Like this is fundamentally, we're gonna talk next, next week more about the idea of hospitality to strangers and what that looks like as a church uh, in terms of our homes and ministry opportunities and I think it's gonna surprise you too just to see how replete the Bible is with this principle. I wanna close with this story. Um, I've told you a lot about my mom and dad. My mom and dad both came to Christ through hospitality. My mom, um, our neighbors across the street, Mrs. Hallgren, um, she's actually the one I was in her house. It's like my only memory of that house. It was like four, almost five. And she's like, do you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins? And I was like, yeah, right. And she'd always feed me and all that. But like, it was home. Like her home was my home. And I always felt at home. Mrs. Hallgren um, was the one who told my mom about the gospel. And my mom trusted in Jesus after being in her home. They provided, they had meals together. And it was just a very sweet environment. It was an extension of our home. When we moved to, from Lansing, Michigan, to Northville, Michigan, and a missionary family went on a permanent furlough, and they lived in our neighborhood, and they started a Bible study, and a bunch of the wives came together in their homes. Some of the wives came to Christ through that Bible study. Well, none of their husbands had come to Christ, and so what happened is in, in eighth grade, fast forward, this Bible study is happening for like seven years. Uh, when I was in eighth grade, uh, this family opens up their home. The fathers all come in and every single one of those dads, my dad included, trusted in Christ, not in a church, but in a home. Isn't that crazy? Like my dad, my story. I mean, it's, if you think about it, how many of you, don't raise your hand, but just, how many of you came to Christ in a home versus a church service? And what you're gonna find is that the vast majority of people ultimately make the decision in a home. Again, there's some in a crusade, there's gonna be some in a, in a church service. But for a lot of people, it happens over a meal where somebody provides a safe place for you to ask the questions you need. Their agenda is just to love you and be transparent about what they believe and who they are. Like if I have non-Christians in my home or I go out to eat with them, I don't hide who I am. I don't not talk about it. I don't share with them what I'm learning because I'm afraid of offending them. Like, like I wanna know what you're learning, whatever you believe, and I want you to know me. And just in the process of real life, it is an unbelievably profound, awesome opportunity. I'll just close with this. Do you wanna see people come to Christ? The culture is changing. And if this is what you want, this will probably be the primary growth engine of the church for the next 100 years. Let's pray together. Father, you never cease to amaze me and surprise me. You are drawing people to yourself all over the world, every second of every day. Uh, it's amazing how many people are trusting in Jesus Christ. And in every culture, there are different realities and some is massive oppression and martyrdom and some um, Christianity is the cultural norm and for some, um, it's dying out. But God, the gospel is still the power of God for salvation and yet your word tells us to be um, wise. Your word tells us to be kind and loving and Lord, uh, the bullhorn guy of old, though applauded then, doesn't seem to be applauded now. Would you give us the wisdom and skill to never abandon the gospel, to never water it down, but to, to give us the opportunity to truly love people and to help them understand the glory of Jesus. But Lord, even if they don't, would you give us the capacity to love deeper? Would you give us the capacity to not be like the Pharisees and only like and love people who are like us and look like us? 
Would you broaden us? Would you stretch us? Would you just give us hearts of love and affection for whoever the xenos, the stranger is that comes through our path, whatever they might believe, whatever their background, whatever their baggage. Lord, I want to personally thank you that we, in this room, every one of us were once strangers and aliens to you. And you opened up your home. And you gave us spiritual food. And you met the deepest needs of our soul. You are the great host. You are the king of hospitality. Lord, I just want to say thank you. And we're so grateful. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.